Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host. And today we are going to finish up our three-part series on working with children with hypotonia. We did a podcast with Nikki Grates. She's a physical therapist here at Pediatric Developmental Therapy. The series has actually been talking about children with hypotonia. And the last two podcasts were evaluation. And Nikki walked us through an evaluation or how do you evaluate children with hypotonia. And today she's going to teach us all about intervention strategies. But Nikki, can you do like a little recap? cap for us and maybe for people if they're tuning in and they're getting the therapy part of it today, just sort of generally what you talked about for the evaluation for children with hypotonia? Sure. During the first podcast, we just kind of talked about what is hypotonia, what are some causes, where it can come from, and kind of how children with hypotonia present. And then in the second podcast, we went into what you need to do when you're doing an assessment with a child with hypotonia, getting a history, some standardized testing you could do. And we spent a lot of time focusing on using the picture which is a tool that you can use to observe a child in all different types of positions and kind of get a good overall picture of where they're at now. Good, exactly. And that's a great recap. So go back and listen to part two because you really can't do the intervention without having, of course, done the evaluation. So the other two were fantastic. And one of my favorite things we talked about was just really what you talked about in terms of observation with the child. I thought that was hugely key in evaluation and doing intervention and therapy. But I really think, Nikki, what you talked about with observation with the child and how you watch them and start the eval and just in their natural and how they naturally are moving, I thought, oh, that's really good stuff. So people, go back and listen to the other two. They're fantastic. So let's jump on into our stuff today, which is intervention. And let me also say this, Nikki. So as we were wrapping up part two in the side dialogue that I guess just Nikki and I were talking about afterwards, you know, I hate it when I go to a class and they only talk about evaluation and then like, oh, yeah, here's some quick therapy stuff. And then they talk about like in one slide and it's 10 minutes. And so we really felt like we should dedicate a podcast strategies. And so, hey, part three was born. And so I'm really excited, Nikki, about you doing this. I've seen you in therapy and you're fantastic. So why don't you start and tell us what we need to know? (laughs) Okay, go. No pressure. Okay, well. I figured the best way to kind of set this up was pick out some functional skills that you're going to maybe make a goal on with a child with hypotonia and then kind of go through what their impairments might be. So maybe the why they can't do it and then some treatment ideas to address what those impairments are. Okay. So kind of the things we were going to look at are rolling, Mm -hmm. independent sitting with good postural alignment, independent standing with good postural alignment self-initiation of cruising and motivation to move, standing on one foot, transitioning from the ground to standing, and jumping either forwards or down off an object. Okay, fantastic. So rolling, this is like specifically when you're doing intervention, you're really looking at rolling. And why is this so important to really start here? 
Well, developmentally, we've kind of talked about this in the other podcast, just kind of how important rolling is for a child with low tone, because that's how you're going to get those obliques firing, which is going to pull the rib cage down. It's going to help with their endurance, because if their rib cage is down, it's not as flared. Their diaphragm's working more efficiently. So rolling is just good overall for getting core strength, giving them some vestibular input so they don't have any gravitational insecurities later. So rolling's just a really good skill, especially with our little ones to have. And it kind of gives them that first ability to move independently on their own. Yeah. And there's so many things you talked about just as developmentally then that happen with rolling then that'll promote good development for all other developmental skills, speech and language, you know, with the core strength and being able to use that for longer vocalizations. And then that's just the first thing I thought of as you were talking about that. But yeah. So then what happens if they've got decreased strengthen their core, then what do you do? What do you like to work on? So when I look at a child and I'm seeing whether or not they can roll, kind of first I'm looking at if they're not doing it, why aren't they? So other than just the not having the good core strength, some of what we talked about earlier, kids with low tone don't like to reach across midline. So they're not reaching across their body to get a toy. So they're not getting that rolling from their back to their side. So they're not even getting the start of it. We talked about also that children with low tone can have some difficulty with tracking objects. So they're not using their vision to scan something from, you know, their back all the way to their side to see an object, to want to roll towards it. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's really big is their difficulty to perform anti-gravity movements. So usually rolling is initiated when the kid starts bringing their knees up and playing with their knees and their feet, and then their hips kind of drop to one side or to the other. So then they start getting that side to side movement, which is what starts initiating some of that rolling. Right. So basically when I'm looking at interventions, I look at kind of why they're not doing that and address it that way. So Mm -hmm. if it is because they have weak core strength, I might put them on the exercise ball, tilt them side to side, really work on those obliques because Mm -hmm. they're going to have to perform some lateral trunk and head writing to clear their head and finish a roll. And there's so many kids we see who have that, you know, reduced core strength. I mean, I can think of so many little preemies that we work with or babies who were born prematurely who would really fit in this category of kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So then we've talked about kids who have weak core strength. What about other little people? So if their problem is vision and they're not tracking, you want to make sure you're strengthening their vision, get mm-hmm. them upright as much as possible. Don't leave them in a container such mm-hmm. as, you know, a bouncy seat or their crib or a car seat, get them out so that they're using their vision to scan and explore their environment. So that's a good way to work vision into it. If they're having difficulty crossing midline, really work on that skill, you know, do it passively for them and then see if they can hold a toy at midline. And then if you move it a little bit over, are they going to follow it? Are they going to automatically switch and really work on that skill? Another thing I like to do with some of my kids that have a hard time rolling is I sometimes use kinesio tape Mm. to really help activate the obliques. So there's different kinesio taping techniques that you can either activate their internal or external obliques just by taping diagonally across. And there's actually a picture of this in the show notes that Mm -hmm. has both the internal and external obliques taped. 
just to help with facilitating them to fire a little bit more. And yeah, I've wondered about this. Sometimes we see babies who are, um, I guess I would say a little bit on the plumper side, you know, all my little personal people were kind of roly poly babies. But just because a baby is a, you know, plumper baby, or maybe, you know, a little larger than another baby, doesn't necessarily mean they have a strong core, does it? Oh, no, not at all. Because sometimes, you know, you see roly-poly, little they kind of like the little Michelin man, but they're really not moving much. But a baby, because they have sort of a weak core and they can't roll and they just aren't moving, so then they get larger, larger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But they kind of fool you sometimes when you look at them. <laughs> and then I think also one of the things I notice with treating kids, one that I've observed with you and with other physical therapists working here is with the visual assessment, a lot of our kids come in with lots of different diagnoses and they may have a lot of different health impairments and problems. But I've never seen y'all assume visual acuity, you know, like assume, oh, this child can see normally or hear normally. You know, you're always kind of see, you know, talking about, let me check the vision, let me look to see. What are your thoughts on that? Because sometimes, you know, that I think they're not seeing, of course, they're not going to move. They're not going to be motivated because they don't see it to move towards something. Yeah. Vision's so important. Big thing, like you just said, the motivation, you know, especially for those little ones, you know, if they don't have anything to look at and mm-hmm. you put them on their belly, they are like, why do I need to lift my head and do all this work if they're not seeing the toys you present to them and they're not seeing their environment to want to explore it? Vision so important with balance too. It's one of the three, you know, main senses that help with your whole balance system. So mm-hmm. vision's just a really important thing for gross motor, fine motor, socialization with peers, everything. Yeah, and you just really, I think, just can't rule it out because you never know. You know, they may have a visual field loss. They could just maybe see better in one eye than another. And it's so hard to really assess, especially in a baby, too. I mean, they can't tell you this is what I'm seeing, you know. know? So do you have any tricks for children who don't have much vision in terms of, like, noise? Or have you seen anything that works better Um, than other things? I have one little girl who she's completely blind in one eye and they're still not sure what her vision is in the other eye, but we do a lot of stuff in a dark room using the light box so that Ah. she's tracking light Mm. or reflection of a mirror off the sunlight coming through the window, which she seems to pick up on. You can try different contrasting colors like bright colors or sometimes those bright reds and bright oranges, or you can do more black and white contrast and see what they pick up that way. But anytime pairing two different senses, so something that lights up and plays music or something that has a texture to it and they can see it. So something that you can pair the senses together, they're going to get more of that input. Oh, I think that's hugely important. Oh, my goodness. You said a ton of stuff right there. And I think that's really just paying attention to the whole child. And constantly assessing and looking like what you talked about in the other podcast, that assessment, that observation piece, I think is huge. mm. See, I told y'all people that was good. It was good in the last one, too. It's good this one. Okay, so what else for our little people with rolling? What else? That pretty much covers it. You just want to make sure that, you know, are they moving their legs against gravity? So you can put little rattles on their feet. People use those wrist straps and put them around wrist to get Mm -hmm. a child to play with their hands. Being a PT, I like to put them on a child's feet so that they can kick their feet and they can get that auditory feedback or they can reach for it and find things on their feet. So then they're developing that lower core strength as well. It's also good for, you know, they're hearing the noise 
if you put the rattle thingies like you're talking about on their feet, then they're hearing that noise. And it's also a good way to teach object permanence that happens and, mm-hmm. um, so that they glimpse of it and they realize, oh, my gosh, there it is. Look, it's back again. Oh, it's gone. Back again. You know? <laughs> so it's a good way for them to understand object permanence, too, which, you know, speech and language thing. I got to throw it in there. It's what I do. <laughs> so do you go back and work on rolling? Like, say a child's got a really weak core and they're two or three and they've sort of moved. I mean, of course, they rolled over, but you're not sure what quality of movement. Would you go back and work? on it or just once they're past it they're past it I sometimes work on it as an intervention Mm -hmm. so if a kid does have an elevated rib cage or they have a hard time with using their trunk to right themselves then I might do some rolling where I kind of start them and Mm -hmm. give them some trunk rotation and then they have to finish it so I'll sometimes do it as an intervention because a lot of these kids if they kind of skip it a little bit then they do more of a log rolling and Mm -hmm. so it comes back all to that crossing midline trunk rotation starting all the way from the beginning if they're not doing it then then you're going to continue to see problems with it later so sometimes I will come back and do it but if they're a little bit older not as much okay good deal all right so now we're moving from rolling to sitting is that right yes okay so kind of like with everything else you have to look at the child and figure out why they aren't sitting, and then address that piece of it. This is where you're going to see a lot of that decreased postural strength and endurance. They might start upright, but they just can't sustain themselves against gravity. And so they start getting more of that forward head, kyphosis, and they can't use those extensor muscles to keep themselves upright. You also see a lot of that ligamental laxity and increased joint mobility that cause poor posturing of the legs and the spine. You'll see some delayed protective reactions and writing reactions. So we talked a little bit about that before, Mm -hmm. those delayed core activations, especially in the obliques. So based on what you're seeing there and what you see is the predominant issue, then you want to choose your interventions based on that. This observation that I have now only comes from working with really good physical therapists for as many years as I have. But So whenever I see a baby sitting and they're not sitting completely erect, you know how when you look at babies, they have like the best posture ever. I'm always like, oh, what's happening there? Is that maybe being too general in thinking there could be an issue or would you think that's something to pay attention to? If they're kind of slumped over, you know, if they're sort of sitting like an adult with bad posture. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always cueing and trying to correct and getting the child to sit upright because it's a skill that they're going to need throughout life. And if they're already at such a young age sitting with that poor posture, it's just going to continue to get worse. It's going to put them at risk for so many orthopedic injuries in the future with that posture. And a lot of times it's going to impact their participation in school too, because sitting upright helps a kid stay more alert and more engaged if they're sitting upright and in a good posture. So what are some of your treatment ideas for sitting? What do you like to do? Well, one of my favorite things to do when I'm working with sitting, I know like every PT is super against the bumbo seat because of the way it (laughs) posteriorly tilts the pelvis and gets them Mm. sitting. So I like to use it, but I roll up a towel and put it in there. So that way the Uh. pelvis stays in neutral. And so a child can still have a lot of trunk rotation and work on sitting upright with a little bit more support. Mm. But funny enough, I was in the baby room two days ago at our daycare and the classroom had a new bumbo seat that grows with you, but it was completely flat. They took out that dip in it. Wow. So I think enough PTs complained, maybe. Wow. <laughs> they corrected so, that. So, See, I, from a speech person, I like a bumbo because I'm like, oh, all right, now I'm sitting up. <laughs> so I, I'm a fan of a bumbo, but I guess I need to be a fan of the new bumbo versus the old bumbo. 
Yeah. Well, and I think you can use the old bumbo, but I always fold up a mm. towel and put it in so that it's more of a level seat and it doesn't have that big dip in it. Because then they're actually working on sitting upright with good posture and they're not starting that posterior or pelvic tilt, which is going to make it harder for them to stay upright and they're going to continue to lose their balance posteriorly that way. Okay. Gotcha. So new bumbos, yes. Old bumbo with a towel. Got it. Yeah. All right. I know what to do. All right. So then for a child who's not sitting up right yet, would you recommend a family getting a bumbo seat with a towel in it or just having them sit and then sit behind them and have the child practice sitting? I do both. Most families have a bumbo. It's one of those things that people put on their baby registry. And (laughs) so I always just kind of explain why I put the towel in so that they understand a little bit more. And they're not just like, why can't I use it the way it's a little bit harder for them with the towel in. Sure. But I think it's a great way because then you can be in front of the child and they can see you and you can engage them visually. And children always respond more to their you know, parents right in front of you and they can see you. So I think it's good in that sense. But I still think it's great for a parent to be behind a child, sitting on the floor, working on their balance that way too. What about, you know, those pillows that are like the shape of like a C or a U Mm -hmm. and you kind of wrap it around them? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the boppy pillows. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think those are great. Once a child really develops kind of that upper core and pelvic stability, those are great just to work on some balance reactions. Mm -hmm. Because once you put them in the boppy, they're pretty much sitting upright. But Mm -hmm. if they're to fall, they're not able to catch themselves yet. So it just kind of keeps them safe that way. Right. So that's kind of when I use the boppy is when they're pretty good at sitting upright, but they don't quite get those arms out fast enough to protect themselves. Gotcha. And pillows from the sofa work as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, with number one, I had the boppy and the whole nine yards. And with number four, I was like, okay, here, honey, let's just put on a pillow from over here. You're good. <laughs> Whatever soft I can find. <laughs> Whatever soft stuffed animals around. Okay. So any other therapy ideas you want to share? Sometimes for some of my older kids, they are sitting independently, but they're just so low tone that they just have really poor postural control. I sometimes use some adaptive equipment, such as Theratogs or the Spio, which is a newer kind of version of the Theratog a little bit. I do some kinesio taping too. There's a bunch of different ways you can use taping to help improve posture. You can kinesio tape the rectus abdominis if they have a lot of lordosis, or if they're not activating those back extensors, you can put some kinesio taping on their scapulas to try to promote some of those muscles firing a little bit better. So it kind of just depends the way their posture is, where you want to address. So I see oftentimes therapists sitting a child on a ball and maybe tilting the ball forward, backward, side to side, that kind of thing. Is that working on sitting or is that something else? It can be. That's kind of working on that core strength. So Mm -hmm. I do that with probably all of my kids. Most kids need core strengthening. Right. So by tilting side to side, you're getting more of that lateral trunk forward and back. You're getting more of your rectus and then your extensors. So it's a good way to kind of get overall core strengthening, doing some exercises on the ball. And you get to sit on a ball. I mean, what's not fun about that? You know? Yeah. And most kids like to fall backwards. Most. Yeah. <laughs> not most. all. Yeah. Not all. There was one little fellow I worked with this week, and he was not down with that falling backwards situation at all. In fact, it was a bad day. But most kids like it. So I see it a lot. That's why I was asking. Basically, to sit independently, you need your whole core stable. So you need the front part, the back part, the sides. You need it all to be working together and firing at the same time to keep yourself upright. So that's why I really try to work every part of the core. 
Okay, so Nikki, we just talked about good posture support for sitting. So standing, that's the next thing. Do you have to have good core stability or core strength to stand? You have to have a certain amount of just overall strength to maintain a standing position. But there are ways around if you do have some weakness to be able to stand upright. If kids are kind of just hanging out on their ligaments with some knee hyperextension, hanging out on their anterior ligaments of their hips. So it allows them to stay upright without having to have that full strength, but it just doesn't put them in a very good skeletal alignment. Okay. So then talk to us about some treatment ideas related to standing, because I'm sure that there's tons of different things you can do. Yeah. And this is where you're really going to get into a lot of your orthotics and your Mm. adaptive equipment and that kind of stuff, depending on what level they're at. Most of your kids with low tone are going to have really flat and pronated feet. So you just kind of have to assess how severe that might be, whether they could benefit from just having an insert to give them some arch support, or if they have really significant collapse, they might need an SMO or even an AFO to give them some more knee stability. It just kind of depends on how severe their hypotonia is and how strong they are in their legs. But a lot of times, just fixing from the foot, that's going to fix all the way up the chain. It's going to put their knees in a better position. You're not going to get as much medial knee collapse. Their hips are going to be in a better position. Their pelvis will be in a better position. And all of that is going to give them more stability for standing just by fixing from the foot. Now, I have heard that for years as well about how it all starts with the feet. Mm-hmm. So I do know enough to know that, which is good. <laughs> so I've got a question about lordosis, and I'm not sure if this fits now or not, but is a child born that's going to sort of be more likely to have more swaying of the back or more sort of, I guess, inclined to have more lordosis than another, or does that lordosis develop because a child is just lower tone? So it changes as you grow. The degree of like thoracic kyphosis and lumbar lordosis, it does change as you grow. A lot of the lumbar lordosis can come from the position of the pelvis. So Mm. if the pelvis is really anterior, that's going to put you in more lumbar lordosis. Whereas if you have a posterior pelvic tilt, it's going to flatten that out a little bit. And that's when you'll see some more of that forward head and thoracic kyphosis and you get that big C curve. Mm, Gotcha. Okay. So what other treatment ideas for standing? Is there like a hierarchy of, oh, okay, I work on this first, then I move to this, then I move to that? Or are there certain things you work on with different kids at different ages? Yeah, it really just depends on the kid, what they can comprehend that you're asking of them, where their deficits are. A lot of times with kids with low tone, you get those strength deficits. So you see a lot of weakness in the hips and Mm. their glutes. So I do a lot of exercises that kind of target that. One of the students I had recently, she did some research and found an article that looked at glute med strengthening and Mm. what exercises are best for that. And she found that side bridges or kind of little side planks was the number one exercise that really target glute med, which is really going to be an important muscle to help stabilize your pelvis for standing. And so I do a lot of side bridges with my kids. I have little cars go under their bridge. (laughs) I love that. That's great. (laughs) We do lateral step-ups, which is another really good exercise for targeting glute meds. So making sure they're keeping their toes forward when they step up. And then clamshells kind of fell further down on the list for an exercise. But that's a good, easy one to do with kids. We call them our alligator chomps. So they have to open their mouth. We put the ball in to see if they can close it with their legs. So you're getting some of that glute med strengthening with that exercise too. 
So it sounds like then first is the feet, and that's when you say that orthotics can come in, that maybe they may need um, some type of insert or something more like an AFO or SMO or something. And then it sounds like hips is the next thing you really focus and target on as related to standing. Yeah, just general strengthening. Mm-hmm. But glute meat is just one of those muscles that is going to just be really important your whole life, pretty much. So if you start it young, you're going to be set up for later. That's right. Well, that <laughs> makes good sense. Do you put weights or do you use more weights as the kids get older? Or do you usually just use their body weight with gravity? Or do you recommend like ankle weights or like, I'm not talking about like weightlifting. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I always start with just body weight. Mm-hmm. And as a kid can do an exercise with good form, then I might add, you know, half a pound or a pound. Depends on their age. You know, some of the older kids, we do go up to like three or four pounds when we're doing long arc quads or something like that. But I always start, no matter what the age really is, just by doing body weight stuff and see how they do with that before I add extra weight to anything. Gotcha. Yeah. Some of those weights are like a half a pound. They're so cute and so little. (laughs) <laughs> little little teeny tiny things. Okay, so now are we starting on walking, like cruising and moving? And is that next? Not quite. There's a few other things I want to talk about for standing. My student was fantastic. She found all this research of just all this new orthopedic type stuff for picking exercises and really what's going to be beneficial. So one other thing she found is an article that looked at working glute max in Mm. your lats at the same time. Mm -hmm. The way it works, so say your lats on your right side, they run at a downward angle towards your spine and your glute max on your left side runs at an upward angle towards your spine. So they kind of run in the same direction and connect at the thoracolumbar fascia all down your back. Right. And so when you're working both of those at the same time, you're really getting good core stability, mm-hmm. which you really need to be able to maintain upright posture, balance, stand, stand on one foot, all of that stuff. By working both of those together, you're really going to get better core stability from the pelvis all the way up. Mm. See, when you're talking about working on the core, I'm just thinking stomach, but also the back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we've handled the rolling and the sitting and the standing. And then obviously the next thing is moving, right? One question is, with the kids with hypotonia, do they stay at this stage before they start cruising longer than others? I would say so, just from my experience. And a lot of times kids with low tone, those are going to be those ones that have chromosomal syndromes, Down syndrome, Angelman's, a lot of that that we talked about in the first podcast. So you're going to have a lot of cognitive deficits too. Mm. So it's not even just can they move, it's are they motivated to, do they understand the concept of I shift my weight and move my body and that gets me what I want. So this is when you really start kind of getting into can they, do they want to, (laughs) how can we get them to. Right. And I think this is also where, I mean, typically a speech therapist is not seeing a child birth to 12 months unless there's feeding issues or something involved. And so normally 12, 13, 15, 18, two years, normally it's where speech and occupational therapies are coming in on the scene. More often than not, physical therapy is usually first. And then I'm just sort of generalizing, you know, but yeah. I think at this point, this is where you've always been looking at the whole child, but then where you really have to start collaborating with the other disciplines. Also, you know, for a child who who's hearing impaired, somebody who specialized in that area, children who are visually impaired, the VI teacher, that kind of thing to really get the child motivated to move and then also working with the family to help teach that as well. Because that's where I see where we start to collaborate a lot at that point. 
Yeah. And then, you know, there's all kinds of cool fun tricks, you know, stand on your head and turn purple or whatever it takes, which is not far off on some days. Okay. So for cruising and then walking, is that where we are? Yep. Okay. Well, hit us. All right. So when looking at cruising, if it is maybe more of their not motivated to do it, that's when you really want to start pairing two senses. So give them something that lights up and plays music or something that is crinkly that they can touch. Some of those books that crinkle, kids tend to like that. Something that you can really pair those two senses together to increase their motivation. Really talk to the parents. What do they like at home? What's their favorite thing to play with? If we don't have it, can you bring it in? That kind of stuff. Because you really want them to want to move. It's going to make your job a lot easier. And then this is where a lot of that weight shift and motor planning is going to come into play too. Cruising is a really confusing activity for kids because they want to go to their left, but in order to do that, they have to shift their weight to their right so they can Mm -hmm. pick up their left foot. So they're Mm -hmm. reaching and moving to their left, but they can't quite pick that foot up because all their weight's on it. So if a kid has difficulty with motor planning, you might need to be a little bit more hands-on and really show them the weight shifting, shift them over, pick up their foot, and kind of decrease how much hands-on assistance you're giving as they kind of understand it a little bit more. And then do you find that repetition is important in that situation, or do they get it pretty quickly? It really just kind of depends on the kids. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I have one girl, I've been working on this for about a year now. Oh my, Um, (laughs) We're really, she's so close, and sometimes she can, and... Some days she just has such a hard time. So um, it really depends on the kid. And I can see a child with maybe, for example, a diagnosis of motor apraxia who'd really struggle with this situation quite a bit. Would that be true, you think? Mm -hmm. So what intervention or what treatment ideas do you usually do? What do you like the best? I really like playing in half kneel and tall kneel at a bench because usually once they get to the standing and cruising part, they're already pulling up to stand. They're getting in that half kneel position. And if you get them a toy they're really interested in playing with and just have them balance, you're getting such good hip stability that's Mm -hmm. really going to make the cruising and walking much easier. And it's really easy for kids to stay in that position when they're motivated by a toy. You're really not asking them to do a lot. They're just kind of playing while you position their feet. So I have a lot of success with just getting them into tall kneel or half kneel. And then I cue them a little bit to make sure that they're actually, you know, using those muscles. They're not just kind of hanging out on their ligaments. And how do you know when to give them less cueing? How do you know when to tone down how much you're doing? I always get them in position and then Mm -hmm. kind of back off. And Mm -hmm. if they immediately go back into that poor position, I help them again and see how long they can hold a good position and just kind of every session, start them off, see what they look like and kind of give them what they need as they need it. Gotcha. It can vary. So some of the materials that you use, I guess, are a long bench. I mean, I guess you could do this if you're in the child's home on the sofa or whatever they have in their house. Mm -hmm. But any other thing to use in the clinic in particular? I usually, when I'm working on this, just set up, you know, a bunch of tall benches near each other so we can work on cruising going between. At our daycare, we have a parallel bar that I'll sometimes use because that can vary in height and get a little bit higher. A lot of times I put a really small bench or a phone book or something down on the ground to see if they can step up on it. So Mm -hmm. going back to that glute med strengthening, you're going to be doing some lateral step ups to strengthen up their hips a little bit. But one thing you'll see a lot with kids with low tone is they're going to turn their bodies and kind of cruise more walking forwards. So they're using their hip flexors more than their hip abductors, which, I mean, 
they're independent, they're moving, but then they're not getting all that hip stability that's going to help them be able to stand without a surface and walk without a surface and keep their pelvis level. So Mm -hmm. I always do a lot of cueing to make sure that they're really keeping their hips facing the surface and they're really getting more of that lateral movement. Ah, yeah. You've got some great pictures that people can get in the show notes. And then you've also given us all use for what to do with those phone books. Yep. I mean, what do you do with the phone book anymore? You <laughs> yeah, know, nothing. No one wants them. <laughs> no, nobody wants the phone books. Save them for your physical therapist. So I guess one thing to be careful of you're talking about is making sure they really are walking side to side. When you say that lateral movement, that's like really walking side to side versus turning their body and really walking forward, I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But there's a great picture of that because the little girl in the picture that you have, she kind of starts off like that's what she wants to do is walking, moving forward versus walking side to side. And you can see your hands helping her really do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great pic to explain this. So go print the show notes, everybody. So then is that it for cruising or we have more stuff? No, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, there's always different exercises you can do to strengthen those muscles, but that's kind of where I focus Gotcha. Well, I think you hit the high point. So as people listen to what you've talked about and focus on, then you can do it different ways. What you said earlier also, the next thing you work on is single limb stance. So standing on one leg, right? Yeah. So tell me some intervention strategies for standing on one leg. So this is going to overlap a lot with some of the other stuff we're doing. So the hope is by the time they get to this point, you've already kind of laid a good foundation Mm. and you've developed some good hip strength, some good core strength, and you can just build on that so that they really can get that balancing on one foot, which is going to be important for them to be able to kick a ball, for going up and down stairs. There's a lot of activities that require that single leg stance phase of Mm -hmm. gait. So I think it's a good goal to have. It's a good measure of what their static balance is and their overall ability to balance. So when you're working on going up and down stairs, really you're working on single limb stance. Is that really what you're working on or is there other things there too? There's other things, but you do have to be able to stand on one foot, support your body weight to pick up the other foot and either put it up or down to the next step. And so when you see kids go up a step and then they'll bring the other foot to that same step and then go up and bring the, is that because they have single limb stance weakness or is it just they're learning how to go up and down steps? Probably a little bit of both. I mean, usually if a kid can't do a reciprocal gait on the stairs, they usually can't balance on one foot for more than maybe like two or three seconds. Okay. And then what about strengthening the ankle? Talk about that for just a second. The ankle. Well, when you're working on different strategies for balance, it usually starts at your ankle and you have your ankle strategy first, but then it moves up to your knee and your hip before you have to take a step to regain your balance. So you want to have really strong ankles. If you ever practice standing on one foot and you do it for a long period of time, you'll notice that your ankle gets kind of sore because there's always these little movements that are adjusting your body weight to keep you balanced. And so we talked a little bit about kids having really flat and pronated feet and they have that arch collapse, which kind of shifts that way inward a little bit. So the inside of their ankle is getting stretched out more. So So then when an orthotic that goes up over your ankle to your calf, would that prevent a child from strengthening their ankles? Yes. So if a child is wearing orthotics and I want to work on ankle strengthening, I usually take them off. Mm, Gotcha. Okay. So now how about transitioning from the ground to standing and jumping forwards and down? Can we push those two together to talk about those? Yeah. Just because now you're like moving and they're up and moving all around. And I would think it would be hard to separate those in therapy. Is it or not really? 
overall strengthening for both these skills, you're going to want to strengthen your glutes and your quads and just basically your whole legs is mm-hmm. going to be good for both of these skills. So a lot of my intervention will just be strengthening activities. But specifically for transitioning from the ground to standing, kids with low tone are usually going to do more of that bear walk to Mm -hmm. use their hands to push up, or they're going to get in this big deep squat with their hips abducted and push up to standing. They have a much harder time getting in that half kneel position and standing up with kind of a more mature pattern. And I guess I'm asking another question about the ankles. If your ankles are really tight, would that prevent you from being able to stand up? So if you're kind of up on your toes and not be able to use your whole foot? Yeah, for the kids who walk on their toes, I'm thinking. Yeah, but most of those kids are more hypertonia than hypotonia. Mm. You don't really see a lot of heel cord tightness in kids with low tone. Okay, so that's another podcast for another day. Got it. All right, because we do have somewhat of an epidemic of that, it seems like, or maybe I'm just paying more attention to that lately. But okay, back to the topic at hand. So for the kids who are transitioning from ground to stand, then you're just working on overall strengthening. And do you find that this gets better as kids get older or is it harder to work on as they get older? You know, I'm just thinking as kids like get involved in more activities, like, you know, more PE and school activities and that kind of thing. Well, I think it's just like anything else. If you develop bad habits and they become routine, then it's going to become such a habit that it's just kind of their go-to and that it's going to feel weird to do something a different way. So, I mean, this is something I really work on from the beginning with kids, even pulling up to stand at a surface. I really try to get them into that half kneel position. And that's such a big emphasis on a lot of my interventions that I do is if they can't do it without a support surface, we balance and half kneel at a surface. If Mm. they can do it independently, then we maybe add like popping bubbles or throwing and catching, trying to keep that balance. So you're really getting a lot of good hip stability and I use it for interventions with a lot of my kids. So I kind of start from the beginning with them. Gotcha. And so then if they're having trouble doing this, then I would assume they would have trouble jumping because you'd have to be strong enough to bend your knees and squat somewhat to jump up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So jumping is kind of two parts. So you have the concentric part where you need that active movement to get the power to generate, to push off and get foot clearance. And then you have the eccentric part, which is the landing for you to be able to control that, control your body against gravity for a safe landing. So there's kind of two parts to the jumping that you want to make sure you address depending on where they're having difficulty. So tell me some therapy activities you would do to target each part that you just spoke about. Okay, so for more of the concentric stuff, I try to do a lot of stuff that's going to increase their power. So you're doing more fast-paced, heavy load type stuff. So I'll have them do sit-to-stands really fast or doing more squat jumps so they get into a deep squat and they push up as hard as they can. A lot of that kind of stuff just to get that increased power. And then when I'm working more on the other side of it, we're working on that controlled lowering. So from standing, we sit really slowly. I work a lot on when kids are jumping down to jump down and maintain a good squat. A lot of times Mm -hmm. in order to control themselves against gravity, they hyperextend and they land really hard, which puts a lot of stress on the knees. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay if they're jumping down to the ground and putting their hands on the ground. I'd rather that than that really hard landing. And then I kind of progress back from that. Can they jump down with a soft landing without letting their hands touch the ground? 
So what about with a trampoline? Do you do a lot of work on jumping with a trampoline or do you prefer to work just on a flat regular surface? I usually start on the trampoline. It's a good spring back. It's harder to jump and keep your knees extended on the trampoline because it has that rebound. So you really need to get that good knee flexion. So I think it's good at teaching that part of it. Once they're good at that, then I progress it to the ground and see how they do. Gotcha. How do you get a child motivated to jump who's like really weak? Because I would think it would be really hard because they're weak. And so they're not going to want to do it because it's going to be hard work for them. I'm just thinking personally about myself, like doing squats and stuff. You know, I don't really love it, but I'm paying somebody to help me make myself do it. So I'm very motivated. <laughs> but their child, five and six year old, I don't think they're going to be quite as motivated. Yeah. So any good motivation things you got for them? Well, I mean, squatting, I always make part of cleanup. Mm. I always have kids help me clean up. It keeps the therapy environment clean, and it's Mm -hmm. kind of something I start from the beginning, and it's just part of therapy. After each activity, we clean up, and it's a good way to just get a bunch of squats in. If you're really focusing on jumping, you can have them squat, and then they have to go reach up onto their tiptoes to give it to you because then you're really focusing on all the muscle groups you need for jumping and getting that push off. Mm -hmm. So that's just a really easy way to incorporate it if you start the cleanup process process your first session you know that's what we do we clean up then it usually goes more smoothly throughout (laughs) yes it does and that's just regular life stuff I love that whole like it's just functional because then they can do it at home without even adding anything to the parents daily stuff this is just regular life things Mm -hmm. I love that yeah and then also I like the whole start do finish of course but if anybody who's listened to this podcast has heard me say it like every single podcast but anyway so anything else One other thing I like to do for jumping and just kind of getting that push off, it's going to help with gait too and normalizing gait. But a lot of kids with low tone, when they have that arch collapse and that pronation, they're not really getting a good push off. They're really just pushing off of that first ray and they're not getting push off through all the metatarsals. So a lot of times I like to take shoes and socks off. You can do magnets on something or stickers on something that's going to come off easily or something on the window, but getting them to do lots of heel raises. And Mm -hmm. I put a little pressure over their met heads to really focus on pushing off through all five, which is just going to help in the long run with normalizing gait and jumping and getting a better push off and getting less breakdown at the foot. There's a picture of that in the show notes too. There is a difference. Yeah. There's so many good toys to work on that where you put things up high and have to reach on tippy toes to get them. Speech loves that because magnets, all kinds of different magnet toys we have to name the things or you can get a puzzle piece of high and you know, bring it down and put it in the puzzle or stickers or whatever. So there's a lot of collaboration and co-treatment that makes for a nice, easy co-treat with speech or OT, both. Yeah. So, all right, we made it through all of them. Wow. So what are the last takeaways? What did we miss? We talked a lot about orthotics, but we didn't really talk a lot about just some adaptive equipment Mm -hmm. for maybe some of those kids that are really low tone and they're just like not gaining the skills quite as quickly. That's when you can get some more of that adaptive equipment in, such as standers and gait trainers. So they're still getting the benefits of those skills, even though they can't quite do it independently. So you want to look and find a standard that's appropriate for the child. If they have really good head and trunk control, you maybe want to go with more of a prone standard. I really like the Dondolino. It's Mm. really easy to adjust. Very simple. It's just a pelvic strap. If they have a good head and trunk control, it's a really good one to use. But if they don't have that, you can find a different kind of standard that works for them, working with whoever your vendor is. Gotcha. And the standards have come a long way, I think, because now they have 
a lot of them will have the really great wheels. So the child can be, if they're in a classroom situation, can be part of circle time while they're doing their standing, or they can be at the art with all the other kids and have their art up on their tray while they're in the stander. I mean, I think they've come a long way. Mm-hmm. And they don't look quite so, they look friendlier to me. Yes. Yeah. Whoever are the standard people, I guess, maybe they heard a lot of complaints. I don't know. They just look nicer than they used to. (laughs) Yeah. Because we do work with a lot of kids in standards often. Mm -hmm. And so then do you give the recommendation to the teacher, you know, 20 minutes in the standard, five minutes? You make that plan, right? Yeah. Kind of depending on how the classroom works, what their routine is. I try to find a time of day that's really going to be easy for the classroom Mm -hmm. to do. It's going to benefit them, you know, to get them upright and standing. So I usually work really closely with the teacher and kind of say at this time of day, let's try it every day and see how it goes. And just keep checking in and making sure that it's getting done and they have no questions and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that was awesome. Thank you, Nikki. I think those are great therapy ideas. I think you hit the high points and the areas where people to focus on so that they can take away and put their own creativity to it and come up with something fun for the kids. Because that's one thing it has to always be is fun. I mean, I think the stuff you talked about is all functional and functional movement and how to target it in the course of the child's regular development and everything. And really, that's what you're looking at, but then also making it fun for the child. I see that all the time in your therapy. So I think you gave some great takeaways. Thank you. So thank you again, Nikki. I really appreciate it. Again, go back and listen to podcast number one and two for assessment. It's just great stuff. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. So thanks everybody for listening and spending some time with Nikki and myself. And I'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 